I think it was in the press release and TechCrunch, but it said that like, this absolutely made me feel older than I've ever felt. And it's that Tinder is your parents' dating app. So our app is really targeting Gen Z, 18 to 25 year olds. And if you think about the app that the previous generation used, and if you look back in time, historically, there has been a new wave of dating apps every 10 years. And it, Tinder's now nine years old. So you're getting to the point where it is through that next wave and the this next generation is looking for an app that's more built for them. And they are a video first generation. And when you ask people about Instagram versus TikTok, and you talk to people that have kind of shifted to TikTok, they find Instagram boring now. And I think you're going to get the same sentiment with dating. These other experiences from 10 years ago are going to feel dated and older and not as fun anymore. And that's where I joke that Tinder's your parents' dating app. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Before we get into today's conversation with Snack CEO and founder Kim Kaplan, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to leave us a positive rating and review. Share this episode with a friend and subscribe to the show. I put up brand new interviews every single Monday and a brand new takeaways episode is an audio exclusive where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week every single Thursday. And now without further ado, I'm very excited to present to you my conversation with Kim Kaplan. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to My Social Life. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Kim Kaplan, CEO and founder of Snack, a Vancouver-based video dating app fresh off a $3.5 million pre-seed round. And I'm very excited to have her here on the podcast today. Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jacob. I'm excited to have you here. And where I want to start, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. From my understanding, you've always been entrepreneurial, even selling as far back, I believe, as four years old, selling rocks because there was more, <laughs> I believe, ROI than a glass of lemonade. Sure. I don't think we knew what ROI was back then, but yes, that's the gist of it. <laughs> so my question is, like, why do you think even from as young as four years old, you were drawn to entrepreneurship? I think I was brought up in a family that was entrepreneurial and that probably played a role in it. Um, but I also think my peers and the people I was around also helped. I went from selling rocks. I think the next endeavor I did was a couple of craft shows with my really close friend and we would sell crafts and we would actually make a decent amount of money. I think our parents paid for our supplies, which helped, but uh, we would at least be able to pay back the supply costs. And we made a bit of money on top of that. And it kind of kept us out of trouble because on evenings and weekends, we'd be making crafts together instead of running around doing who knows what we would have been doing. I think it's funny because I was just reminiscing on the two friends that either I sold the rocks with or that I did the craft fairs with, and they're two still two of my closest friends still. Uh, so it's funny how that all works out. That's so so like so the the same as two friends you said two different friends uh, from two different walks of life uh, that. One I started selling rocks with and the other one I started in craft fairs with. And they're still two of my closest friends today. That, and are they involved in like entrepreneurship, anything themselves? One is yes. The other one, no. Yeah. But yes. Okay. Fair enough. And so with kind of such a, with an early entrepreneurial background, I'm curious what led to you going to school for, I believe it was geography and acting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So I actually originally wanted to go to business school. I got accepted into Queens for business school. And I also got accepted to this program in England called First Montsmouth Castle. And in order to go to England, I couldn't go with a business degree. So I declined the business degree and instead went with an arts undergrad so that I could go spend my first year in England. And I obviously don't regret it now. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do and what I really enjoyed and all the classes I took, I love geography for some reason. And when I think about my favorite courses, it was either glaciology and looking at how the glaciers shaped our earth. And to this day, I still love flying over the Rockies or flying over different areas and kind of seeing and knowing what happened in that period of time. And then on the flip side, my other favorite course was biogeography. And we got to pick an animal and follow it over the course of time and say, how did it evolve? And I chose the snake, which is something I'm petrified of, but for some reason chose it. But it's fascinating to understand the difference between how different snakes became sea snakes versus becoming, becoming land snakes and how they kind of would go back and forth depending upon the climate that the different continents they were on. So those are two of my favorite courses. And then acting, if I'm totally honest, it's because it was a really easy, fun course to take and kind of a break from, I think, using your brain so much. So I really enjoyed the people and the kind of the freedom of that. But it also, I think, gave me confidence to get up on stage and confidence to talk in front of people. So I really do value what I learned there too. I love that. I mean, I, I feel like I try to work this into every podcast, but it's you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. And so that's one of the instances with the acting. 100%. And I think I've had a number of those instances in my life where you look back and you realize why certain things happened. And I'm very much a believer that things do happen for a reason and that you can only learn from what's happening in that moment. And then like you were saying, look back and realize that, oh, like this all fits together now. Yeah. And so I'm curious and how, when did the switch to business come? Cause you took your master's in business in Australia, right? Yeah, I, um, so I graduated from Queens and I started working for an oil company doing well log analyzation and realized that was not a path I wanted to continue down. <laughs> um, and so I applied to a couple of different business schools and I got in and accepted to one in Australia and got a full scholarship. So I chose to go down there and international fees are quite expensive, but it was a great opportunity. And I spent a year and a half in Sydney studying and learning oh. international business. And it was interesting doing it in Australia because a lot of the courses ended up being about APAC. And so I got to understand and learn that. But then upon moving back to Canada, it became really challenging to get a job. And the reason for that is they're off cycle for where you typically hire in North America. So I was coming back and it was still mid semester or partway through when a traditional MBA program in Canada would have been happening. So I ended up waitressing when I came back to Canada. And I remember at the time being really upset that I had a master's degree. I was waitressing, like, what did I just do with my time? And my aunt at that moment said to me, and I will always remember this, and it's a piece of advice I give to lots of people, that always, nobody wants to hire someone who's negative, negative about the current position that they're in. So even though you're waitressing and you're really down about that, what are the positives? And then make sure you repeat those positives when people ask you about it. And I thought that's a really great piece of advice. So I thought, okay, I'm waitressing. Uh, it means I have my days free. I can go and interview for jobs during the day. 
I work with really amazing people that I enjoyed their company and we had fun with. And then thirdly, I got to meet really interesting patrons that would come into the restaurant. And it was actually one of the people that came into that restaurant that hired me uh, that led to me meeting Marcus, the founder of Plenty of Fish. And that's where I say, like, you look back and you see all these serendipitous moments and why certain things happen. And that really, that waitressing job, if it wasn't for that, I probably wouldn't have ended up at Plenty of Fish and wouldn't be where I'm at today. I love that. I love that. I'm curious kind of what your your stances on education, because I feel like right now it's such a popular topic is people debating, especially in entrepreneurship circles, is going to school worth it? Or should you start a company and try and learn that way? Where do you land on when it comes to education? To me, it's about learning. And I very much viewed my undergraduate degree as when I look back on it is learning how to learn, but also learning how to socialize. Uh, I was young. I was 16 when I finished high school. So I was really young and to throw me into a university situation where you'd never had responsibilities to take care of yourself, to socialize, to meet new people. That's what I really took away as being probably the best experience I got out of that, um, along with the relationships and the friendships I built. And yes, the education was good, but that's not what I took away as my biggest learning experience. And then when I went and did my MBA, that to me was more about learning the core tools that I needed. So it's really about what you need as an individual to learn and whether that's you're growing up and learning as a result of starting your own company, you're learning as a result of being thrown into uncomfortable situations with the university where you have to socialize, meet new people, learn how to learn. Um, It also depends on what you want to study. Like, obviously, if you want to become a doctor, that's something you have to go to school for. Um, But I do think the ways in which we learn are changing and you're seeing that with COVID right now and the fact that we can take classes online, you can get degrees online. So I think there will be the shift in what a traditional learning sense is, but I very much valued my experience I got and I would go back and redo those for six years again and again and again, <laughs> and I would not look back once. Um, what was the circumstance that led to you graduating high school? <laughs> I did grade one okay. and two in the same year. <laughs> I joke that I, I sell the cookie eating and nap time. <laughs> it was the school I went to, but you go at your own pace. And I guess I loved learning. So I kind of self-learned and kind of, they would put up on the board, like what you could do to get ahead and like what the next week's classes would be in the next week. I think I was in, when I finished at that school, I was two years ahead in math a year ahead because I loved it for some reason. Uh, and then I was a year ahead in most subjects and I was actually behind in French and English. So I had to get some tutoring to kind of catch up in those and then everything else I was ahead. And then I had to redo a year of math. Okay. And, and you mentioned too, when you're talking about the restaurant there, that it was through a patron at the restaurant that ultimately led to you meeting Marcus. What was, what's like, how did it go from just someone in the restaurant to ultimately leading or leading to meeting Marcus? Uh, so I was working with this gentleman and there was a couple of us that would work together and I started to become really close friends with one of those people. And we went out socializing one night and I had a few too many glasses of wine and her sister joined us. And then I ended up hanging out with that sister that evening who went back to her apartment, met this gentleman named Marcus while she was changing. And next thing you know, the next day I had a job offer and I actually asked Marcus, I think I waited till my probation period was over. 
And I asked him like, why did you hire me? Like I was drunk as a skunk. And he kind of laughed and said, and Marcus is phenomenal at hiring, kind of has these spidey senses, but he, uh, he said, I knew if you could handle yourself that well, that inebriated, you could do almost anything. <laughs> I've shared that story before, but it's always fun. And, um, but Marcus, he's phenomenal at kind of just picking up on certain cues and recognizing, I think, not to boast, but to like recognizing talent and skill sets. And he offered me a job. And at that point, I didn't know what Plenty of Fish was. It actually took me a while to accept that role because it was right after the financial crisis. I was working for a brokerage firm at the time, trading futures and securities. And it was not an easy decision to move from a safe, secure job to this unknown company with no employees. And I took the leap and never looked back. Why'd you end up taking the leap? I don't know. I think I consulted with the person that I was working with at the time that happened to that new Marcus. And they just told me that this is a, I don't even, I actually don't even remember. I think they told me it was a good idea. I don't know. It, uh, I just, I remember grappling with it and thinking, you know what, what do I have to lose? Like, I don't think the job that I'm in now is my be all, be end and be all and end all. Um, it's not something I'm going to stick with indefinitely. So why not make the leap? But this is in 2008. So tech wasn't what it is today. And 2008 in Vancouver, technology really didn't even exist. Apps didn't exist. So you think about the world that we live in today and how prevalent apps are, especially for an online dating company. And they just weren't, a thing. I think iPhones were just starting to be released at that time. And the first apps may have been coming out, but it wasn't prevalent. It wasn't something, I think we all had Blackberries at that point in time. And that was revolutionary. And so at the time, how many users did Plenty of Fish have? I found 15 million. Is that accurate around the time you started? Yeah, I think it was 15 million users and 10 million in revenue was, I think, the public numbers. And so with, with tech being so new, did you have or anything you learned in school? Anything? Did you have a background in tech or anything at all before taking this job? No, I, I'd worked for an ad agency for a little bit, and we had done some keyword analysis for some major companies around doing some Google ads. But other than that, I had no experience in tech, um, none. It was really trial by fire and sitting beside Marcus for seven years and learning through him and learning through the opportunities he gave me. And I was right place, right time. I don't want to say lucky because I think hard work, there is some luck, but hard work really does play into it as well. And that I had the opportunity to kind of ride the success of Plenty of Fish and learn and I think it'd be very hard for someone without that experience to jump into a startup today and get that same level of exposure that I got 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Um, but that's just the nature of where I think the industry is now. And you were, were you employee number three or hire number three? Employee number three. So how did, just out of curiosity, how did Plenty of Fish get to 15 million users, 10 million in revenue with two employees before you started? That was all Marcus. He did it all on his own. Like the stories are out there. The stories are true. He ran it on his own for a very long time. Uh, for actually, about, it was about five years that he ran it on his own. That's, that's insane. <laughs> that's, yeah. and, and so did you get the VP title right when you started? I actually think my official title in my contract was chief strategy officer. Um, and then at the time, Marcus did say to me, whatever title you need to get the job done, essentially. 
So depending upon which conference I was at, who I was talking to, I was either VP of sales, I was VP of ads, as VP of whatever it might be. Um, but I didn't really ever take titles too seriously. It was more of what, do what you need to do to get the job done. And if people are going to take you more seriously with this title, then, and it really, each conference, I would just hand out different cards, depending upon which one I was at. That's awesome. That's also like the the best definition, I think, of a startup in terms of wearing different hats, like literally changing your hat depending on the conference. And is it true that you were kind of like the default legal person because you had a business degree and that made you the most qualified? Yeah, that's, uh, it was basically, we had a couple of legal things coming up and who in the organization could take it on. So I was given the responsibility of legal for the first few years. And now I wasn't doing the legal myself. I was liaising with all of our lawyers, but kind of making decisions and making sure that it was all moving forward, whatever, whatever we were dealing with at that moment in time. And so, cause like when you came on your, you were tasked essentially with helping or with growing the user base, growing the revenue. And you kind of did that as a team of one in the beginning, right? Like Marcus was there, but that was like, you were the only person at quote unquote department. So with ad revenue, which is we were solely ad revenue at the start, um, we did quickly hire a couple of people to help. So we built our own advertising platform. So we had, we hired our first, I mean, Marcus was still doing all the development at that point. So we hired the first developer and they built our ad platform for us. And then we did hire a couple of people to help with sales because we had thousands of people advertising on the platform. So initially, yes, it was myself. And I think one other person were almost like, daily making people would email us and then we'd be there making changes in AdWords, trying to increase bids and do different things for them. And I'd still know a bunch of them and in touch with them um, because they'd be emailing you a few times a day saying, can you make this change? Can you do that change? And then finally, when we had our own system, they could do it themselves. But it was originally just ad revenue. Um, And then for marketing, it was all of our offline marketing. Um, Marcus honestly ran a lot of our online for the longest time and we didn't hire for that for a little while. But everything from our Lady Gaga music videos to our billboards to we did some TV spots. Um, So those are all the initiatives that I oversaw. And you mentioned Lady Gaga, and I really want to talk about that. But it wasn't just Lady Gaga, right? You did placements. I have Flowrider, Jason Derulo, 303, Kesha, like a long list of artists, correct? Flowrider was the first one we ever did. And it was really interesting because... We did it and we didn't think too much of it at the time. And all of a sudden we started seeing a lift in signups and we couldn't figure out where they were coming from. And then we realized that it was time with this release of the song. And then that's when we doubled down and started doing more of these integrations. And when you think about music video placements versus say a TV spot, you can pay comparable amounts to do them. But with a music video placement, you stay there in, in perpetuity. So our Lady Gaga music video placement is still there. Our Britney Spears, our Jason Derulo. So anyone who watches those music videos continues to see the brand. Whereas with a TV spot, you're buying 30 seconds. And once that 30 seconds is done, that ad disappears and no one sees it again, unless you buy another spot. So we just viewed these as being a better bet than what you'd get from a TV spot. Although we did test that as well. And how did this come up? Because if I'm not mistaken, that was the first kind of offline marketing you really did at Plenty of Fish, right? We tried some out of home. We did some subway advertising. We did a few other initiatives, but then the the music videos was the largest. Yeah. And radio. We did test some radio too. And so how did the how did those opportunities come up? Because I I read somewhere, I think it was a press release or something that you had relationships with a couple different um, record studios. I think Interscope was one, RCA was another potentially. 
we uh, an individual approached us and said hey i have this music video integration would you want to work on it and we figured the first one wasn't that expensive compared to when you when you compare it to all the other costs of advertising so we tried the first one and when we saw the lift and sign from that we said great let's try another one uh and lady gaga is actually one i had to convince marcus to do because she wasn't that popular when we initially started working with her or started talking about this and then she started to kind of become more popular and it took quite a bit of convincing and finally marcus said yes and it was expensive um comparative to the other ones and it was by far the most successful one and so are you just tracking kind of just the, the spike in web traffic and user signups? Is that kind of the way you monitor how that goes? Yeah. When you do larger initiatives like that, you can kind of, if you're holding your marketing spend constant, so you're saying, okay, if we don't change anything else and then we introduce something, whatever that lift is, is attributed to that. Okay, interesting. And I'm curious, like with the music video, I'm assuming you have to kind of relinquish creative control, right? Yep. Is that hard? It wasn't, no. Um, in hindsight, we probably with a couple of them should have put something in there. And so we did start to bake that into our contracts in the future. We should have said, yes, we want some control over how we are placed or the way in which it's done. Um, but it is what it is at the same time. Like there's only so much you can control in those types of placements. So it was fine. It was successful. I'm I'm curious if you think relinquish, I'm asking from a perspective of almost influencer marketing now and kind of fast forwarding to today because you often hear the most successful influencer marketing campaigns are ones where you kind of relinquish that creative control and let the influencers create within their own style. So do you think having a ton, having a lot of creative input would have helped or hurt the campaigns in the long run? I think it depends on the creator. I think certain creators work better with guidelines and kind of guardrails, but other creators work better with that creative freedom. And it really, I think, comes down to them. Like they know their audience. I, I firmly am a believer that the creators know their audience and that ideally we're in a world where they are taking creative control over something. But having worked with some of these creators, in some ways you do need to provide certain guidelines for them and direction. Otherwise, they don't know what to do with your content because you live and breathe your brand and you understand best who your customer is. So, I think there's that happy medium between, okay, how do we inform you as much as possible in a short period of time, but then let you take some creative freedom within that. Mm, okay. And you said that, so in order to measure that, you just kind of, you don't run anything else really. You just look for that spike to attribute to the campaign. And from my understanding, kind of your entire time at Plenty of Fish, you were monitoring two to three key metrics at a time and that was it, right? And just constantly trying to improve those select few metrics. It was more than two to three. Uh, there's two to three that you can look at high level. And then if something goes right or wrong, you can dig further in and say, okay, what we'll move that? But <laughs> every day I'd run, I had my three reports that I'd run every morning and they would be a combination of a number of metrics that you'd be looking at. And so to say it's only two to three, there's two to three really important ones, but those aren't the only ones. How do you determine what are the important ones? The ones that ultimately make a difference in terms of your growth. And are, and are those ones more so middle funnel than top or bottom funnel? It depends on the business. It really does. Um, if you're an e-com business, obviously the most important metric would be number of sales. Um, but you all might also want to look, is it repeat purchases? Is it one-off purchases? Because each of those things are going to impact what you can spend to acquire a customer. 
So if you think about e-com, if you're only making 10% on a sale, but they purchased 10 times, that's great because you're not paying to acquire them 10 times, you're paying to acquire them once. And then they come back and they buy from you multiple times. So it just really depends on what you're optimizing for and what your company is. And one of the ones that you were optimizing for, correct me if I'm wrong, but there was messaging, right? Yes. Yeah. I'm curious about, because I mean, messaging just shows that there's activity on the platform and people are using it. Is it challenging where the product that you're marketing, the better it is, the less people are going to use it? Because the better it is, they're, they're going to connect with someone and they're not going to be on the platform because they're, by the design of the platform is to get people off the platform. So does that, is that, a, how, how do you overcome that challenge as a marketer? So for me, there's kind of two parts of that question. The reason why messaging is important, because ultimately the end goal is to get people off the platform. And if you think about the entire funnel of a dating app, in order to reach that success point, you have to sign up, you have to send a message, or you have to say, interact with the person, like them, whatever it might be. You have to send a message and then you have to enter into a conversation and then you get offline. And if you get people into relationships, they're your biggest champions. Like that ultimately is how you become successful in my view, because especially now where there's less of a stigma attached to dating, people share it and they tell and they're happy and they want people to know, oh, I'm going on a date with someone I met on X site. I'm going, I'm in a relationship with someone. I'm getting married to someone. I had a child with someone that I met on this site. Like you become part of their narrative and what better ambassador or champion to have out in the world than someone who like you've deeply impacted their life in a positive way. Um, even if it's just a date, that date can be fun and lighthearted and enjoyable. And if that's what you're looking for, great. Um, if it's a relationship, amazing. If it's marriage, great. Like all those things depend upon the individual, but those are your biggest brand champions. And how did you overcome that stigma? Because 2009, I mean, I think the tables are slowly starting to turn, but that stigma, from my understanding, I think I was, I was, I wasn't on dating apps at that point, but like, how did you over, like, how did you overcome that stigma, especially in the early days? I think it just, it naturally happened as, I think people were still happy to talk about it. By the time Plenty of Fish came around, you already had Match, you already had eHarmony, you already had a lot of these other dating apps that kind of paved the way. I think we were, when free dating sites and apps started to come out, it did become more natural and become more mainstream. So I think the our society in general just kind of shifted that way. I don't think there was any one moment. Um, Tinder, I think definitely revolutionized the industry and made it even more acceptable to be online. And part of that was being mobile first and having an app that looked at dating from a mobile first world where everyone has access to it so readily. Um, but otherwise, other than Tinder kind of shifting that and making it more acceptable for younger people to date online, there isn't one moment where you're like, this was the catalyst that kind of set it all off. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And I'm curious, because as a, even though the company was doing well, again, millions of dollars in revenue, millions of users, you still had a relatively small team. So you're able to operate quickly versus usually as businesses scale, they have, I always describe it, it's like, a, it's like a cruise ship and a speedboat. And the smaller your team is, you can turn like a speedboat. If it's a big, if you have a big team, it takes a long time to turn, but you can have the advantage of doing really well, but still having a relatively small team. So you're able to, you're able to make those decisions and act quickly. So I'm curious what the risk tolerance was like at Plenty of Fish and how, like what the company's comfortable, how comfortable you were with that in terms of trying to 
find unique and different ways to grow the platform? I think like every company, your risk tolerance changes as you get bigger. Um, you're less, you're, you're willing to take more risks when you're small because you're trying to grow and you're trying to make big changes. And then when you get to a point where you are larger, those risks are lower because you don't want to kind of screw up the success that you're having. Um, and especially once we got acquired by Match Group and then you're part of a public entity and then the risk tolerance goes down further because you now you have certain metrics you have to hit and milestones you have to achieve. So I think doesn't, it's not a matter of how many people you have in the company. I think it's a matter of what stage you're at in a growth cycle of an organization as to what your risk tolerance is. So as the risk tolerance goes down, how do you continue to foster an environment of innovation within the company? It's hard. It's really hard, um, especially as timelines get longer to implement something. We had everything from hackathons. We actually started doing ideathons where it was more low key, less pressure, but teams would get together. And as a company, we would say, here's a problem we're trying to solve and get everyone who wants to participate to participate in trying to solve that problem and come up with ideas for it. We do it on a Friday afternoon with some drinks and everyone would be sitting around and kind of joking around and there'd be teams competing against each other to come up with the right ideas. And you'd be listening into other teams and trying to steal their ideas and take credit for it. And it was just fun. But at the part of it, the difference between that and the hackathons is the hackathons where anything goes, like create whatever you want, spend a couple of days building it. Whereas these were centered around a problem that the organization was trying to solve and saying, okay, here's um, whether it's coming up with a new microtransaction feature or it's trying to optimize messaging. It's, hey, here's the problem set. And how do we get people from different areas in the organization to come together into these teams and think about that problem set and generate new ideas? And then we can kind of take those ideas away and say, okay, great. We've got 20 different new ideas here. Which ones are feasible? How much effort are they? What's the confidence in them? And do we think we can actually achieve what we're looking for? But we did get some great ideas out of those idea thons. I have a quote here I from yours. I can't remember if it was, Uh-oh. I think it was in a talk. You gave, <laughs> it was either a podcast or a video I found on YouTube. And you said is, you hadn't done too much digging. <laughs> I may have hedged a little bit on the amount of research that I did. Um, <laughs> the quote is, if you aren't failing, you aren't thinking big enough. I'm curious why failure is so important. And I asked because actually it was on my podcast I did with Nicole, who, you know, was we were talking about how I was talking about personally, I'm so failure and risk averse because of just the way the education system was. And I like failing was such a negative thing. And so as a result, that's manifests me not taking, not being as open to failing as an adult. So I'm curious in why failing is so important to you. I don't, maybe it's in my mind, it's phrased a bit differently now. And it's more about mistakes uh less about failing like i think people like you need to make mistakes and if you're not making mistakes then you aren't challenging yourself or you aren't thinking big enough and you aren't trying new things and we are going to make mistakes and we aren't going to succeed at each initiative we do but if we try 10 things and one of them works really well great if nine of them don't that's fine as long as that 10 makes up for the fact that the other nine didn't so I don't know if I don't know if failing and mistakes are the same. Um, you could kind of make them synonymous with one another, but it's more about you need to you need to take. I am risk adverse too, and maybe it is our education system. But um, again, like I think back to I'm 
thinking back to the different points in time at Plenty of Fish, and there was moments where we absolutely would take much bigger risks. And then there was moments where later on in the life cycle of the organization, we wouldn't. Um, so I think now where I'm sitting with Snack and what we're doing today, we're way more focused on taking calculated risks and we aren't going to succeed at everything we do. And it's more around being okay with that, but setting ourselves up to say, okay, look, we're going to try 10 things. Nine aren't going to work or eight won't work, two will. And as long as two work, we're totally fine. Do you have a favorite mistake? Ooh. Um, there's, so a couple of things that I come to mind there. One is when we were split testing things at Plenty of Fish, we'd always make sure we had a backup in case there was some type of a technical issue with one of the tests we were running. And sure enough, uh, we had a technical issue one day. And our backup test was one we were like, oh, like we did like, seriously, we have to run this test because no, but like it was something simple. And we, none of us believed it was actually gonna work, but it was just one of those tests that we had in there as a backup because it was super, it was just a changing a word around. That test was actually a 3% lift to our conversion rate. And it was one that nobody was betting on. It was our backup of like, oh, we just have this in there. Like, I think it was like, we just putting this in there because Kim is forcing us to have a backup test in all the time. And it actually ended up working. So had we not had that one technical glitch, we never would have tested that because no one believed it would work. So it's that also, you never quite know what's going to be successful. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that's a mistake or just it's the notion of you might have some firm beliefs and you never know what is or is not going to work. Mm -hmm. I'm going to jump. I have a couple other plenty of fish questions. I want to make sure we talk about snacks. I got a lot of questions about that. But my first one, you said how Marcus kind of created an environment for you to learn through just your time at plenty of fish. We don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I'm curious about kind of the circumstances around offer on them, what that was. Sure. Um, yeah. So when I was at plenty of fish, we were trying to find ways in which we could generate revenue from a different source other than just ads. Cause at that time, plenty of fish was leave at that time was still just ads based. Um, and we thought we have all these people on this platform and Groupon was just starting to take off in the US and it had, hadn't come to Canada yet. And we said, great, could we be the group? Could we create a Groupon of Canada? And essentially, because we had all this ad space on Plenty of Fish, show ads for OfferOn instead of showing ads for Groupon and kind of grow a business that way. And so we set out to build it. And in the time it took us to build it, which to me, like it was such a phenomenal learning experience from the doing it from the ground up. Um, Groupon entered Canada because it took us six months to get it live. And you don't think about it that at the time, or we, or I hadn't thought about that at the time and it definitely no better now. Um, but it took us six months to build it and to launch it. And in those six months, Groupon entered Canada. And unfortunately there was a lot of competitors uh, because we weren't the only ones watching Groupon success in the US and thinking we could do that for Canada. So it just didn't show the success we were looking for. And so we tried it and then we did some investing out of Offeron and then Marcus eventually said, okay, Kim, come back to Plenty of Fish and let's, let's focus back on the, the mothership again. I, I like that you edited on that. And my question based off of that is I, I interviewed the, the co-founder of Starbucks and he mentors a lot of startup founders today. And one thing that he says is not getting distracted by things that take you away from your core mission. So is that one of the takeaways from that is to always be focusing on 
kind of the core goal instead of trying to find other ways to make money. Cause you said, oftentimes that's what startups get into. I know you were further along than a startup at that point with plenty of fish, but it's looking for extra ways to make revenue and doing something that's not directly related to the core business. Is that something you kind of took away from that experience with Offeron? Um, we were big enough. I, I agree with what you're saying for startups, but we were big enough at that point and had enough team that we literally set this. It was just me. So I went out and did this and hired a whole separate team. So I wasn't really pulling away from, and we did have, there was some overlap and some plenty of fish people were still involved and I was still involved a little bit in plenty of fish as well, but it wasn't, um, I'd say strain on plenty of fish itself. So no, not in that instance. If anything, I think it set me up for even more success when I came back into plenty of fish because I'd had that experience and I knew a lot more than I did when I went into running off run. Um, but thinking about what I'm doing now as snack, 100% agree with that. And that you can get distracted by shiny objects all the time. And the promise is something new or an opportunity that you should be chasing. And I think you really have to constantly be checking yourself and saying, is this the right thing? Where's my energy? Where's my focus going to be funneled? And how do I make sure that I'm, as the founder, there's only one of you and there's always going to be a strain on your time. So how do you make sure you're focusing on the right things, let alone the company being focused on the right thing. Bring me back to, I believe it was 2017 when you're sitting in a restaurant and Marcus comes in and tells you he's selling the company. Like what's going through your mind in that moment? Holy shit. <laughs> you said you were never going to sell. Um, let's drink a bottle of wine, maybe two, because I need to digest this. <laughs> it was it was interesting and it was actually funny. The next day we were, we were in San Francisco and we were going to F8, the Facebook conference. And that next day we ran into the Tinder founders. And so we started talking to the Tinder founders, but they didn't know this was happening. So Marcus and I are sitting there chatting to them in the back of my mind's going, huh, this is going to be interesting. And meanwhile, got to know them a little bit better through that experience. But yeah, it was a, it was a, oh shit moment um, to say the least. But I, I don't know. I, I never thought it was going to happen, but you know, like, take your moment, you digest it and then you move on. You say, great. Okay. What do we need to do next? How do we make this happen? And, um, didn't really look back from there. And then what did come next? Like, what's that process look like of getting acquired? I don't know if ours was a normal process. Um, we, there's only a few of us in the company that knew this was happening um, and going through the due diligence phase, because obviously if it fell apart, that we didn't want that to become public. Um, so there's a few of us that were kind of off the side of our desks while still trying to do our day jobs, putting this acquisition and all the due diligence together. And then um, the acquisition got announced in May, but then, so that's February to May. So it was a short process. And then the government of Canada had to approve the deal. So it actually, because it was over a certain dollar amount. So from the time it was announced to when it actually officially closed was another six months or so. And there was this period of time where we were in this weird limbo where there wasn't a clear line, distinct line of who's in charge, but it was, uh, we made it through it and it was all fine. It was that's, those are the moments where you're like, don't screw anything up, just keep going. <laughs> So when I say like we were rest, less risk adverse, those are definitely the moments where you're less risk. <laughs> you got lower, lower risk tolerance. Yeah. And so you got to enjoy, I mean, I believe you, you stayed on with Plenty of Fish a little while after the acquisition, but then you got to enjoy a little bit of an, an early retirement, right? Sure. If you want to call it that. 
<laughs> it's like, what's it feel like the, the first morning you wake up and you no longer work at Plenty of Fish? Excuse my French, but it was a serious mind fuck. Uh, when you spend 10 years thinking every moment of every day about something about work to all of a sudden not having anything you have to wake up for in the morning and nothing to think about it was really tough um i think i ended up purposely diving into advising a bunch of startups so that i just had something to do and something that i was using my mind for and uh so i took on i think about there's about five or six companies that i started advising and helping out and a lot of that was that i wanted to see more successes uh come out of canada and so there aren't enough stories of these successes over in the lifespan of Canada, really. And so how do we grow more of these? And I'm a firm believer that the only way we do that is by those that have had success, continue to give back and help other startups. So that's what I did. And it was, I love all the founders that I worked with. I love the companies they were building. Um, and I think there's, I don't know, I think we need to do more of that. So I guess I found my way by giving back and it probably wasn't until I would say like seven or eight months later, six, seven, eight months later, where uh, I ended up actually taking a chunk of time and not doing anything. And it took me that long to get out of the mindset of I need to be busy. I need to be doing something. So. And then at what point do you decide that I'm going to jump back into the game and start my own company? Uh, not easily. <laughs> I, uh, I, so I was the whole, I wasn't like I was, I was planning on jumping back into doing a new company. I was using TikTok one day and I was scrolling through videos and I came across this video of this girl and it's a Chase Rice song and she's doing, what's your name? What's your sign? What's your age? Where are you from? And all of a sudden they stopped. And I had this light bulb moment of, oh shit, like she's trying to use TikTok to date. And then I clicked on the Chase Rice song and there's over 130,000 of these videos. And I realized that not all of them, but majority of them were people trying to put themselves out there in a dating context. And then she had the hashtag single as her kind of description on the video. And I looked at the hashtag and there's over 13 billion views of the hashtag single. And I had this moment of realization that the next wave of a dating app was going to be something like TikTok and it was going to be video first. And I called up as many people as I could think of in the dating industry and was like, talk me out of this. Like, am I crazy? Like I spent the last five years telling people not to get into dating because it's so hard. And I told anyone who came to me, I said, I really firmly believed that dating is an incredibly difficult industry and don't do it why all of a sudden am I trying to get back into it? So I talked to as many people as I could and basically said, like, talk me out of this. Tell me I'm crazy. Like be that voice of reason. And it got to the point where people are like, no, I actually really like your idea. And I would invest. And I'm going, oh crap. Like you're supposed to be this like person pulling me out of this and telling me not to go down this path again. And instead you're telling me to do it. So I gave myself a deadline and said, hey, Kim, you have to decide by this day. Either you stop talking about it and you forget about it, you move on, or you do it. But you can't just kind of keep waffling back and forth as to whether or not this is the right idea for you. 
And so I hit that deadline and said, okay, I'm in. And we hit the ground running. And why were you in? I just had this moment of clarity when I saw that woman's video and I can't explain it, but it was just, I knew that this dating app was going to work, that something video related was going to be that next dating app. And I think understanding the evolution of the dating space and how apps have progressed over the last 15 years, I just, I knew that it was going to work and I can't explain it any better than that. But that's kind of, that was that moment of, okay, this is it. And so the app itself, you have to forgive me. I didn't download it. I have a girlfriend. I don't think she'd be too excited if I got a dating app, even for research purposes (laughs) for a podcast. Um, but so essentially it's like a similar UI to TikTok, but when you like someone's video and they like yours, it's a match, right? Yes. I think that's super interesting. And I'm curious, like, because one thing you also noticed, correct me wrong, but it was that people, when they get on, when they make a match on a dating app, they often will jump off to another platform. Yes. And so that was another part of the intention of making it a social experience, but within the app and TikTok's messaging also isn't that great either. As far as like, I'm concerned. So what is it about? snack that keeps people on the app longer and doesn't keep them from jumping off you've definitely done your research (laughs) so the difference with snack and where we where i kind of say that component of instagram or snap experience or a tiktok experience comes into play is once you've matched your videos are going to keep showing up on my feed and instead of that like button there's a dm box and the value of that is that now that we've matched and you upload a video of your dog I see that video of your dog and I can DM you directly from that video, whether it's through text, voice, video and say, oh my God, that's such a cute dog. What type of dog is it? And it's a much more low pressure, natural way to start a conversation with someone versus the example of Tinder or Bumble where you match and then you're thrown to a separate UX that's only messaging where you have to try to figure out what to say to one another. That's just not the way you would naturally flirt or naturally kind of show your interest to someone. And when I was talking with Gen Z about how they're dating, that's why they're moving off to these other platforms. It's because they can kind of covertly continue the conversation with someone or flirt with someone without it being that, okay, so now we're on this match screen. What, we, we go grab a coffee? We're gonna go have a date? Like, what do you wanna do next? Like, it's a really high pressure moment and dating is hard and you don't need those high pressure moments. Um, so we were trying to say, how do we make it lighter? How do we make it more fun? How do we make it more natural? And I'm curious if so far, what the content looks like on the app. Is it very similar to like you're seeing TikTok type videos that aren't necessarily just dating related, just more so people showcasing their personality? Yeah, we, um, so we're still really early. We only launched a few weeks ago. Uh, our video editing tools are going in shortly. So right now we're really saying like, upload your TikToks, upload your reels, upload your videos you already have. And the point of the app is to be more authentic and more real and more natural and show off who you are. Because ultimately, if you end up going on a date with someone, they're going to see that anyways. So why not be more open? And when I always say that, like, compare a static image of someone with guitar in their hands. And now all of a sudden you get a video of them playing this phenomenal James Blunt or Dave Matthews song. And how do you kind of get so much more about who they are from that video versus that static image. And that's what we're about. Mm -hmm. And like the way I've kind of explained it to people when I, when I told them I was preparing for this podcast, it's 
I almost, the way I explained it is I bring it as like, it's almost content dating. Cause like when Nicole first told me it was a video dating app, my brain instantly jumped to like FaceTime speed dating is where my brain <laughs> yeah. went when I first heard video, a video dating app. When Interesting. I, that's where my brain went. So now, but when I, when I was researching and I realized how it actually worked, I was like, holy shit. It's like, and then I started explaining this to people it's video dating, but then I'd like had, I'd go further and say, but it's more like content dating because you're engaging with people for the content that they're posting. I know images consider content, everything, but just in the way my brain works, that's the way that I kind of wrap my head around it. Cause yeah, that's just how I've explained it to people. And I think that's super interesting. Cause one other thing that I think was in the press release and tech crunch, but it said that like, this absolutely made me feel older than I've ever felt. And it's that Tinder is your parents' dating app. Yep. <laughs> can you kind of, can you explain that for a little bit? Cause I was like, I'm not a parent. I don't use Tinder anymore, but like it's my parents' dating app. But then I was thinking about, it, I was like, it's totally right. But like, can you kind of explain where that, that sentiment comes from? So our app is really targeting Gen Z, 18 to 25 year olds. And if you think about the app that, the previous generation used. And if you look back in time, historically, there has been a new wave of dating apps every 10 years. And Tinder's now nine years old. So you're getting to the point where it is through that next wave. And this next generation is looking for an app that's more built for them. And they are a video first generation. So they're expecting a video first dating experience in my mind. And when you ask people about Instagram versus TikTok, and you talk to people that have kind of shifted to TikTok, they find Instagram boring now. And I think you're going to get the same sentiment with dating, that if you have the option between more vibrant, more robust profiles, you're going to opt for video. And these other experiences from 10 years ago are going to feel dated and older and not as fun anymore. And that's where I joke that Tinder's your parents dating app, because if you ask a 20-year-old what apps your parents use, chances are they're saying Tinder. And why do you is the why didn't we have video dating apps like this before? Is it just because to your point, Gen Z is video first, and so it just becomes very natural to them? Versus if it had been millennials and older generations doing videos would be like a foreign thing for them to do, and that's why it didn't work. So historically, when you've tried adding video to dating apps, it's just been a slideshow of images. And so to me, the key is that TikTok made it acceptable for video first profiles. But more importantly, they taught people how to create compelling 15 and 30 second videos. And that's why now is the right time for video first dating. Prior to TikTok or prior to even Musical.ly saying like, here's how you create something interesting about yourself that's really easy in 15 or 30 seconds, no one knew how to create a video. And it's this really daunting thing. And instead, now it's kind of this fun thing that people are doing and naturally have. And that is a bit of a generational shift even as you see TikTok aging up, but it's very much ingrained in this generation that grew up with Snap, with Instagram stories, with now TikTok, that video is just the de facto medium that they communicate. Is there a world, like I know we're still, like you said, the app just launched, so this could be me kind of getting way ahead of myself here, but could you see a world, like even like for hypothetical, TikTok does ultimately get banned is there a world where snack becomes more than just a dating app i don't know uh when you sign up we ask what you're looking for whether it's friends dating um relationship and part of that is to kind of see how many people are choosing friends 
and then we can make a determination in the future what we do with that. But never say never. Um, but we opted to go for dating for where we're at today. I'm curious if with that question, what is like, is friends a leading answer? Um, no, it's pretty even at the moment. And I think the reasoning behind that is we explicitly say this isn't shown on your profile. So if you were to say this is shown on your profile, I think you get a lot more people opting for friends. So they don't feel like they're as, I don't know, like it's not a signal to the other person, positive or negative. Um, but because we say, no, we're not showing it on your profile. I think we get more honest answers. And you mentioned how you gave yourself a deadline to start this app. When that deadline passes, you go, I'm all in. What is, what happens the next day? Like what is going all in? What is starting this actually look like? I created my pitch deck. I started putting together my um, list of investors I was going to reach out to. And then COVID hit. (laughs) So that was about a year ago. Uh, And so I paused um, while I kind of figured out what was going to happen with COVID. And if I believed more in the idea, less in the idea um, and kind of took the summer to say, okay, like, let's see what happens with COVID. And then I, every month that would go by, I would wish, like, I wish I'd done it. I wish I'd gone and raised. I wish I'd done it a month earlier before COVID. Um, And so I just made the decision again. And I said, okay, you're in or you're out. And I decided to dive in again for the second time uh, and raised capital in September. All through Zoom. I actually did it in this very room. I, that's why I chose to make this call here today too, is that I do have an office. This is not where I work from. Um, but when I was pitching, uh, investors, one thing I really thought about in advance is where am I going to feel most comfortable? And the place where I'd feel most comfortable is sitting on my couch in my den and I kind of joked around. I'm like, hey, like VCs normally bring you into their den. Like you're down in the valley and you're going from like one location to the next where it's their office. And I literally was bringing them into my den and saying, no, this is like, this is where I'm comfortable. This is where I'm going to pitch from. Mm-hmm. And so that was, was that an angel round that first round? Uh, pre-seed. That was the mm-hmm. three and a half million that was announced okay. on, in February. Uh, we raised that in the fall but didn't announce it until we were ready to launch the app. Got you. So talk to me a little bit about that funder. So you said $3.5 million. I have have the quote here. Um, Leading Silicon Valley VCs are some of the investors. So first off, congratulations on the raise. That's huge. Thank you. I'm curious. So with the the raise, one thing that's people get, I feel like they misconstrue when it comes to raising investments, people get, they focus on the dollar amount, which of course is important. The whole reason you're raising capital is to have money to grow business, but equally as important is also the investors themselves that are coming into the company. So what did you look for in the investors you were bringing into Snack beyond just like, they're going to write this, this check? Like, what were you looking for in the investors? What would be their networks themselves? I was really lucky in that I had multiple term sheets um, that I was kind of picking between. And actually part of it, me deciding who I went with came down to wanting to ensure I was able to bring particular individuals in. Um, So it's really people I trusted that I thought would have a good sense and people that could be my sounding board um, for when I was working on something or needed help with something. And I did a mixture of funds and angels and they've been a phenomenal 
group of individuals. I've enjoyed the last six months of working with them. Uh, it's been a really, really great experience. And I know not everyone has that. Um, I did carve out 25% for Canadian investors. And that was something kind of going back to, I want more successes in Canada. So I did carve out that 25% for um, Canadian investors uh, to include them as part of this. But I did go down to the Valley and kind of get my valuation, get the lead investors, and then kind of came back to them and said, here's what it is. Um, are you interested, interested in participating? Okay. And so you said it was in the fall. Like how, how long was the raise until like how many months, weeks was it? Three weeks. Wow. <laughs> and how many, how many pitches a day is that? Um, I would pitch probably starting at eight in the morning and go to six at night. Um, pretty much straight through. Uh, I think a lot of people, and I've said this a few times now, a lot of people talk about the pitch and how important your PowerPoint is. Um, but I actually probably spent, yes, I did my diligence and I made sure my deck was great and it was five pages and very light. And didn't really say very much, but it worked obviously. Um, but it was the process leading up to it and taking the time to really identify who the right funds were for the round that I was raising, who the right partners were at those funds to participate. And every fund has partners for different types of investments. And then also, what is it that they were kind of looking for? How much do they typically contribute? And then I would go through my LinkedIn and I'd say, okay, who's a connection that's connected to them? And I would ask those people, how well do you know them? Would you be comfortable introducing me? And I did all that prep in advance before I started pitching. And I think that's what people don't realize is they kind of go into pitching and be like, great, I'm going to pitch my five funds and they'll do cold outreaches and they'll do this and they'll do that. Where I spent probably a month getting myself ready to start pitching. And that I think is what led to more success in that round than the actual pitch itself. Mm -hmm. That's super key. I work with an investor just doing some content stuff for him. And one thing he always says is he never, he very, very, very rarely, 99% of the time will only take an introduction if it's a warm intro. He won't take yeah. a cold introduction. He won't take a cold email. Like just because there's so much coming in, but anyways, that like just that warm intro is like a filter. And he says the one 100%. way to do yeah. And he said the one way to kind of, get, if you don't have a connection is to do that research, like you've done and to send a, a detailed, not detailed, but like an email that shows you've done your background and that you're reaching out to this person for a specific reason, because you, what you're pitching them will be of interest to them because of everything they've invested in the past. So then that's a super important thing for entrepreneurs to hear the fact that you did all that prep work first. How do you handle when, because you're doing pitches three weeks, eight to six, every single day, it was a competitive round. So there's a lot of people who want to get on this, but I'm assuming there were still people who passed on it. How do you handle that, for lack of a better word, rejection? And then how do you determine what feedback to take into your pitch in the business and what not to? Because I interviewed uh, Mikhail Cho, who's the co-founder of Unsplash. And he said one thing they dealt with, especially early on, was mentor whiplash. We have two people of equal, st equal stature with very similar success, giving you the opposite types of feedback. So it was like whiplash because they were getting completely different feedback. How do you kind of filter through what feedback to take in and what not to over the course of this crazy three-week pitch sprint, for lack of a better word? So I would say the only person or group that definitively said no to me was the very first one I pitched. And so that's a piece of advice and they were a good fund. Don't pitch a good fund as your first fund 
do a bit, at least one practice round, if not two. Uh, but they're the only ones that definitively on like said no at the first, after the first kind of conversation, everyone else at least had two, three, four. And it just got to the point where a lot of them were, I was moving faster in the round and other funds were moving faster than what they were willing to do. And that's why they dropped out. Um, what I would do with my pitch and the way I approached uh, the whole process was how can I learn from this? How can I like, I kind of viewed it as being when else do I get to have this many amazing smart people thinking about my company and what I'm building for 30 minutes or an hour at a time? Like no, at no other point do you get those introductions? Do you get to have those conversations? Do you get to seek their advice? And some of it you'd file it in the back of your mind and be like, okay, that's interesting. Let me see if I hear that again. And if you heard it multiple times, then it's obviously something you should be thinking about. Other things and questions that they would ask, I would make sure I'd adapt my presentation so that I preempted those questions for the next time. So if I was going to my fourth meeting and I'd heard a question already, how do I just make sure I cover that really quickly and whatever I'm talking about so I know that question gets kind of, it's a non-starter. They don't even have to think about that one. So I think that's really important is as you're hearing questions, make sure you're adapting your pitch. And as you're hearing objections, figure out how you can adapt your pitch around those objections. And it's never, it's like a living document or living, I didn't adapt my actual deck, but I adapted how I talked. And how do you keep track of everything? Not just the feedback, but also there was multiple calls. So like, how do you know who's proceeding to a third or fourth call? Like, do you have a spreadsheet somewhere to track everything you do? color coded with about 20 different colors in it, depending upon which stage each one's at, which one's out, which one's in, which one do I need to follow up with? Which one am I still waiting for an intro from? You name it. It's got a color behind it. I love, I love that. I don't know if you ever use Notion, but like that is the, the app I use to track and not fundraising, but whatever I'm doing, like it's just, so I was just curious what your method for tracking. Everything oh, I'm, was. I'm just a Google sheet. <laughs> I'm pretty lame when it comes to that, but it's color coded Google sheet. <laughs> You mentioned kind of before the podcast how you've already jumping into another fundraise. Now, granted, the the original raise, the pre-seed came back in the fall. You just announced it in February. So we're March, April here. The episode, by the time people listen to this, it's going to be May. Why did you jump into another raise so soon? I've talked to other people on the podcast and they said timing your raise is super important. So why was now the time to raise money again? I didn't intend to raise. Um, when the TechCrunch article came out in end of February, I got a lot of outreach from people that were interested and loved what I was doing. And ultimately that's what kind of led to this. And there's a few really key people that came forward and said, I want to put money in. And the previous round was closed and it was full. And so I thought, how do I get them in? And I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll open up a safe. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to open up a safe for them, who else should I be bringing in? And then the conversation just kind of quickly snowballed and if I'm honest right now, super hot for consumer apps. I There's a lot of um, opportunity to raise capital. And with the TechCrunch article, we got more press pickup than what we anticipated. So our original launch strategies of going into particular cities or particular states and kind of slowly growing liquidity in each of them kind of got blown out of the water. Uh, we're, we have signups in Japan. I don't know how they heard about us, but it's great and it's awesome. And what that meant is that we're having to accelerate the growth of our team and hire roles that we probably wouldn't have hired for four or five months and bring them on faster, but also spending a little bit more in marketing and making sure that we can generate liquidity because 
from a dating perspective, it's really important that there's enough people in your locale or close by that um, you'd be interested in. So where we might've gone slower and been a little bit probably more risk adverse, which probably comes more naturally to me, uh, I've decided to raise the additional capital and then take advantage of the current state of the market and the excitement behind what we're building. And when I talk to our current customers, they tell me how much they love the app. They're like, you can see it and that absolutely this is going to be the right format to date in. It's just, they want more people on the app. So we've heard them and that's definitely part of why we're doing this. Was there any thought during the pre-seed round to do an oversubscribed round? Um, one of the term sheets was for more than what I took. Um, at the time, I was pretty convinced that three and a half million was great. Originally, I was asking for three million. So three and a half was more than I initially planned for. Um, but it's more of the speed to market and the ability to move faster that I think now is the right time to raise that additional capital. And when I talked to my initial investors about it, I think there was some hesitation to start with. And then what is explaining when I explained to them kind of what I was seeing in the market and why I thought it was the right time, they all jumped on board and they all said, yes, of course it makes sense. I mean, you don't have to answer this, but I'm assuming because it's so popular and like there's some people that want in and the app is growing fast that you could raise on better terms than if you'd raise back when it's a pre-seed round. So it probably benefits you in the long run anyways. But talk to me now about growing the app in terms of a user base. So you said it's picking up, you got downloads in Japan, you're targeting Gen Z and you're doing, you started, so the app launched a couple of weeks ago and you started with a influencer marketing campaign with a group of four TikTokers, I believe for a bachelor type contest. Yep. Is, is, was that, I'm curious one, how you found the influencers? Cause I was looking, they're all TikTokers, three to 3.3 million followers, all four of them on TikTok. How did you find those four people? So when we were reaching out to different creators, we talked to probably a hundred different creators and kind of narrowed down who was available, who was willing to do this, who's single, uh, who, um, who's the right yeah, who's in the right area, who's the right time, um, and narrowed it down to a couple of them. But I will say that this is one of those things where when I say we're going to try 10 things and figure out which one works, that's kind of my approach to how we're doing all of these different marketing initiatives. We don't know which one's going to work. We're new to this. TikTok is still so new. And you never quite know which one is going to take off and be successful. So that's kind of the approach is, how do you try 10 different things and see which one is going to be successful? And then when you find that one, double down on it, triple down on it, 10 exit. Um, so that's how we're approaching that opportunity was one of those tests to say, okay, will this work? What happens if we work with influencers with 3 million followers? What happens when we work with influencers with 50,000 followers? Those are all kind of the tests and different hypotheses we're trying to figure out to determine what does work. And What's working today may not work come May or may not work come September. So we're trying to move as quickly as possible to learn as fast as possible and double down on that. You don't have to give away all the secrets, but what are some of those other 10 things you're testing right now? Oh, everything from like Instagram influencers to um, TikTok to uh, doing the bachelor campaign. We ran a logo challenge um, to help create our logo. Like there's just a number of different things working with more, um, a couple of local influencers to say, okay, if you have smaller following, what does that do? It's, it's really across the board. And what I've said to the team is I'm willing to try almost any idea. You just have to come to me with what that idea is, 
what the expected result is, and we're going to know if that was successful or not, so we can make a decision to do it again, and how you're going to measure that. One thing with your team coming and pitching you ideas, and I believe you learned this from Marcus, is even if you say no to them, it's not an outright no forever. Is that they have to? They just didn't present the information accurately. Can you kind of explain, like, do a better job explaining it than I did, and how you learned that from Marcus? I learned that trying to pitch things to Marcus. <laughs> You'd always get a no, and what it taught me is that when I'd get a no, did I believe? more firmly in that idea and that I had to figure out a different way of approaching it because I wasn't selling it properly? Or was that no, like when I heard no, I was like, oh, that sucks. And did I move on? Because if I just moved on, then I obviously didn't have enough conviction in the idea to think about it in a different way. So in some ways it's that checkpoint to decide, is that idea worth fighting for? And that's what I told my team today. It's not that Marcus ever told that to me. It's that I learned that from having to pitch to him and getting multiple no's all the time. So I'm very transparent with my team and that, hey, I say no a lot, but if you really believe in this idea, just pitch it to me in a different way. Or you didn't sell it to me in a way that I was so, that I was convinced that this was the right thing for us to do. And you also have a company or a discord, right? That your users can join. They can get feedback. Talk to me about that. Cause I thought that was such a great way to get easy user feedback. Cause I feel like sometimes it's hard to get feedback from your users on a product. So people that are opting into this discord are like, perfect people to have in there because they want to give you feedback. Talk to me about how that's gone so far. Yeah, it's, it's something where it's, again, it's one of those tests. We have a couple hundred people on it and we have some channels that are more active. It's, I think the smaller channels where they're more closed off or more active than the open ones, because in order for us to share and disclose some of the things we're working on, we obviously need certain confidentiality agreements signed by people. So the ones where we're able to have more closed room conversations are definitely more active. And I really value the feedback and the community there. And I want to find ways to make it more active. So hopefully by May, we have figured that one out. Uh, I would say we're probably not doing the best job at the moment and creating that activity in the overall community, other than these kind of segmented rooms where we have very specific um, asks and kind of opportunities with. And so you're, you're trying all these things with marketing, you're growing faster. So you're hiring developers when you raise funds kind of back to that a little bit, how do you determine where to allocate those funds? Cause it's like one thing, like you have an influx of capital, you can put it anywhere you want. So how do you determine what sequence to do things in? I actually think the other part comes first. So prior to raising capital, it's laying out who do you need on the team and when, and thinking about your first year. And then saying, okay, if I need to hire all these people over the first year, this is how much capital I'm going to need. And then you give yourself a bit of a buffer. And that's the exercise I did. Now, when I say I'm speeding that hiring up, obviously that's going to increase my annual burn. So that's where some of that additional capital we're raising at the moment comes into play in that we're hiring sooner. Therefore, it's going to be more expensive for us to build over the next six months to a year than I originally forecasted. What do you look for when you're hiring? You said Marcus just kind of came intuitively to him, but it's definitely an art form. So what do you, how do you approach hiring? I run an interview process called the Who Interview. And it's actually something the Match Group brought to Plenty of Fish. And I'm a massive fan of it. And it's there's a book on it that you can read, but it essentially takes you through the person's last three roles and what they did and how they interacted and the people they interacted with. And what it does is it gives you a sense for kind of patterns that you can pick up on how they like to be managed, 
as well as what their strengths are, some of their weaknesses are. And there's no right and wrong answer there, but it's how do they fit with you as their manager? And what are your strong skills? Like, what are you strong at versus what are they strong at? And do they match well together? If someone is, if you can pick up that someone's really, um, I don't know, like headstrong is the right term, but, and likes to debate. If you're not someone who likes to debate, then that's not going to be a relationship that works very well for you as a manager. And, but there's other people that love managing people that debate. So it's more about picking up for what are you as a manager, what fits well with you, but then how does that mesh with them being successful too? So I think like, to me, it goes both ways is they're not going to succeed if your management style and how they'd like to be managed don't mesh well together. And what's your approach to culture building? Because obviously like one, you, you can try and set the culture, but culture will also happen organically on its own as you're bringing all these different people, diverse people into the company. So what's your approach to kind of trying to, to shape that culture? I love the culture we had at Plenty of Fish. Um, I always take an approach. I like to work hard and play hard. Uh, and that I'm hoping we can filter that through the organization. It's been hard with COVID to try to come up with ways to generate that culture uh, when I haven't met most of the team in person. So how do you really do that? We're doing Friday happy hours right now with the team and getting together and talking and the transparency piece and always being open and sharing what's happening in the organization. I think those things are easier, but that culture piece, like I can't wait till we can go have a barbecue outside where I can go and meet people in person and like laugh and have some drinks together. I think that'll be really important. And I'm hoping we get to do that soon, but I am very, uh, I'm very much a strong believer in work hard, play hard. So <laughs> I kind of <laughs> built that in and not everyone, uh, that doesn't appeal to everyone, but that's kind of who I am. And I think you can see that come out in the organization. And obviously like there's going to be differences, but how has it been different for you going from, you have a leadership role, plenty of fish, but it's different when you're the founders. Like how is that has that been like a challenge for you to be the founder now as opposed to just the VP? Like, how have you approached that? Honestly, it hasn't been too much of a shift if I'm totally honest. Um, Plenty of Fish was always my baby. Uh, for better or worse, I always kind of treated it as such. So I think I always was invested in it as if I was a founder. Um, I don't find that it's that much different. In some ways, I feel like I'm a little bit I know a bit more now, so I'm less stressed and less worried about things than what I used to be. Um, I think my approach to the team is better than what it used to be. I have more experience in managing people. I have more experience working with people than I did back then. Um, I can definitively say I'm better at that now. Um, yeah, but the, I would say there's, the biggest difference is the shift in the last number of years at Plenty of Fish and being that larger organization that moves a bit slower, that is, um, and then going back to that, those initial building phases of when I first joined Plenty of Fish feels a lot more akin to where we are now. And it's so exciting and I'm having so much fun. I was talking to my investor, one of my lead investors yesterday and uh, he's like, oh yeah, a lot of founders say that um, starting a company is like chewing glass. And I was like, seriously, I'm like, I'm having so much fun. I love what I'm doing. I love the team. I love what we're building. I, and I hope that more founders feel that way. And I know there's tough times and I know things don't always go as expected, but I'm absolutely loving what I'm doing right now. So I'm really cherishing that because I know it might change 
or probably will change at some point. So I'm taking in all these moments and really relishing it. And I remember looking back at Plenty of Fish and saying some of my favorite times when we were like just a handful of us and sitting on a heater, drinking wine out of glass, a blue glass in the middle of the day because we could. And those times go by too quickly. So I really am trying to cherish as much as possible where we're at today. I have another quote. This one I wrote down where you I got really from. did dig. <laughs> it's from an interview from 2011. <laughs> and so the quote is, I openly embrace the 100 hour work weeks and have learned to ignore the stress related eye twitch. It's all about building and belonging to something you believe in. You love what you do and you love what you did at Plenty of Fish. Is it still 100 hour work weeks or is there a little bit more balance in the schedule now? It's interesting. I I think it's more that, and I don't know if this is COVID or being founder versus employee, but I'm always thinking about work. So whether, I don't know if it's a hundred hour work week or it's just constant work. Um, and, but it's not a burden. It's something that I enjoy thinking about. And I have these kind of light bulb moments. I'm like, oh, I need to talk to so-and-so about something. And it's not a, like, I get excited about it. And maybe it's just the stage we're at and the phase we're in, but it's not a, it's not a hundred hour work weeks. It's just constant. Um, but I always make time for myself. And I think that's something that's really important is that even if you are always thinking about work or always doing work, how do you take those moments out where you're doing something for you? Like I go for a run or I go for a walk. And even if I'm doing my emails or taking a phone call on a walk, that to me is still me time. And that might sound strange, but like me taking an hour to go for a walk, that's me time. And I might be emailing the entire time, but that's still me time. What would your advice be to someone that's trying to figure out and find what they love to do? Like you do what you love to do. What would your advice be to someone who feels like they aren't doing what they love to do and they don't know how to find that? Keep trying new things. Um, I think if you think about your entire day or week or month, I hope that there's some moments that you enjoy out of that and write down what those moments are and try to figure out what the theme of those moments are. Because there will be moments of joy, I would hope, in everyone's days, whether that is personal, professional time, uh, whether that's you gaming or doing something on the side, like just write down what it is you're enjoying over the course of a couple of weeks or months and then figure out what the pattern is there. And then how do you double down or how do you find an opportunity that looks like that? I'd say we have someone that actually joined Snack and they said to us recently, like, I never thought this type of a job would exist and they're having so much fun because, and they're, they just came out of university and they've been part of our team now. Um, but nothing that they were exposed to at university or through internships or other opportunities was similar to what the role is that they have at snack. And they're so excited about what they're doing. And they just had this realization that like, this is exactly what I wanted to be doing. And I can't believe this job does exist. So it's not to say that, what you're passionate about can't exist somewhere. It just might not exist in what you know today. I'm curious. And before I, get, I want to say too, I don't look at you as a female entrepreneur. I look at you as an entrepreneur, just straight up. Like I don't like the term female entrepreneur, but I'm curious how being an entrepreneur that is female has impacted your career. Um, I have had a few moments of rec recognizing where 
I am definitely a couple things. One, when I was fundraising, someone that was helping me through the process basically said to me, go put your cocky pants on and walk into the room with your cocky pants. And I had this realization that um, men will walk into a room with a lot more confidence and men will apply for roles that they're not necessarily qualified for but they will overstretch themselves in a way. And this is a, not a general statement about all men, but it was just that moment of realization, like, okay, I've got to put my cocky pants on. I've got to show up. I've got to be confident and I've got to act a certain way. And that's not male or female. It's just, I have to have more confidence in what I'm doing. Um, but I, there have absolutely been moments in the past where I realized that um, I was invited to this dinner once and I was one of two women and it was a CEO dinner in Vancouver, a tech CEO dinner. And I remember looking around the room and being like, oh my God, these are amazing CEOs. Like, this is phenomenal. Like, I, I'm so proud of the fact that I got invited to this because obviously I'm not the CEO of Plenty of Fish, but I'm viewed at that sea level. Like, this is amazing. And as the dinner was kicking off, the person who hosted it made a comment saying, I really want to thank the sponsor who was the one female and Kim for being the two women in the room tonight. And that's when I realized that the reason I got invited is because I was female. And I got super pissed off to the point where I think I turtled and I kind of closed off from the evening and didn't participate as much as I normally would have. And I left the dinner early. I didn't stay for dessert. And I came home and my now husband said to me, I told him what had happened and how upset I was. And he said to me, are you crazy? Do you know how many people would kill to be in that room with those people? And you left because you got upset that you were invited because you're a female. And it was at that moment where I realized that I should have taken advantage of that moment. That there's so many times where there's disadvantages to being a woman or disadvantages because of your race or your sexuality, but there will be moments where you can take advantage of that. And lean into that and do it because you're not serving yourself any favors or anyone else by not taking advantage of that. And I think I did a disservice to myself that evening by not being excited to just be in the presence of all these people and getting upset about the fact that the reason I was there was because of my gender. Um, and that there was so many other people that would have loved to have been in that situation, male, female, it didn't matter. So that's something I always kind of think about in the back of my mind is take advantage of where you're at. Um, even if you feel like in your gut that your reason you're there is not the, you deserve it regardless of whether or not in your gut, you feel like you're there for a different reason. Mm -hmm. I just want to thank you for sharing that. I, I appreciate that. Um, I just know sometimes those aren't easy questions to answer. So I just appreciate no. the openness. That's one that I've shared a few times with different people because I think it's always really resonated to me. And it's something I always go back to of that moment of feeling. And it's happened a number of times since then where I realize that the reason I'm in a room or I'm in a situation is because I'm of my gender and it's disheartening. And I hate that. But at the same time, if I'm not the one doing it, if I'm not there, then it doesn't mean that anyone else is there to replace me either or that someone else wouldn't come up or how do I be that role model for other people that want that opportunity in that position. So it's, it, it sucks. It happened again recently in the last 
six months. And I really, really, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to feel like you deserve those moments. Mm-hmm. How often do you reflect on the whole journey? Like all the way back to working as working as a bartender and working as a server in restaurants, all the way to where you are now. This is the most I've reflected on it in years. I think, if not ever, I think I um, I go back and reflect on moments, and definitely over the course of the last few months, have reflected on it through interviews and questions like this. But I've never gone this in depth, so I thank you. Um, it's been really fun and it makes me nostalgic and at the same time excited. And like, even what I said earlier around some of my favorite times of the early days of plenty of fish and how I really need to relish where I'm at right now. Like I'm stopping and reflecting and saying like forcing myself to now relish that. And it's something I hadn't thought of. So thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate that. That means a lot. Thank you. I know we're out of time here, so I'm just going to jump to my last question that I ask everyone at the end of every interview. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I kind of like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. Pretend you have a crystal ball and you can ask this crystal ball any question and you'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you want to know the answer to? I honestly don't want to know. I, I think I would change how I'd approach things if I did know the answer to a question. And going back to that belief that things happen for a reason, I if you knew the answer to that question, you'd change the course of how things happened. Um, so this might be a cop-out, but I don't want to know that. Mm-hmm. That that's okay because like I have a similar mindset to it where it's like if I get the answer to that question, is that gonna for cause me to behave differently, which doesn't lead to that? And I get way too down a rabbit hole. And it's like I understand where you're coming from with that answer. Like, so I had to like totally the butterfly effect. Exactly. Yeah. I just I don't know. Like you think there's some maybe alt- more altruistic questions, I but then again, things can change or I I don't know. I yeah, I would rather not know. I'd rather live in live in the moments that we're in now and make decisions right or wrong and have that be the course that my life takes. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. But I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I want to give you the floor. Where can the people find you? Where can the people find snack, plug anything and everything you got right now? Ah, snack. It's currently on iOS. I don't think by May we'll be on Android. So (laughs) it's snack. It's the snack dating app. Uh, you can download it from the iTunes store, rate us five stars, share it with your friends. Um, appreciate any love, support anyone can give. Uh, it definitely, every single person that signs up is a massive help to us and sharing the love and giving us feedback too. That's one thing that we really want, especially in these early stages, we have the ability to adapt the app, to change it and to make it what people want it to be. Um, and that's one of our benefits. So 
give us your feedback and we will very much hear it. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you once again for taking time to be on the podcast. And I want to thank everybody for listening. Whether you've listened the entire way through or you only listen to bits and pieces, I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Every do me a big favor. If you're single, maybe if you're not single, but you're looking for a friend, go and download a snack. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below so you can find it. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. My DMs are always open. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.